John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 is our text for today. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. I trust that you'll be encouraged. Uh, Such wonderful worship this morning, so Christ-honoring. And the Word of God says this, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. What kind of love is this? See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when, we, when he appears, that's Jesus, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that's Jesus, purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word today. Thank you for the love of God, your love, God, that gives us such hope in such discouraging times. And I pray the congregation would be encouraged and uplifted at the very thought of such condescension in the love of Jesus Christ that he would come so far to this world to save us that we might have new life and new hope and then heaven when we die. I pray that you would help us today to preach the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about 37 miles outside of Flagstaff, Arizona, is a unique feature in the uh, geological landscape of Arizona. It's called Behringer Crater. Behringer Crater. Some of you may have been there. It's about 2.4 miles in circumference. It's not a perfect circle, so the diameter is around 3,900 feet. don't know how many meters that is. It's about 150 feet deep, or excuse me, around 500 uh, feet deep. And the the lip of the crater that comes up above the, the desert floor there is about 150 feet high. Scientists who study such things tell us that uh, thousands of years ago, This massive crater was caused by the impact of perhaps a small comet or a very large meteor or even some have suggested a small asteroid. People who study such things, and I don't know how one would measure such a thing, suggest the object from space was 150 feet wide, weighed several thousand tons, and they suspect it was going around 26,000 miles per hour when it struck the Earth's crust. And I don't know how someone would measure such thing, but the suggestion has been that when it hit the, the floor of the, the desert there those thousands of years ago, it set off an explosion the equivalent of something like 20 million tons of TNT. Now, I don't know how someone would measure that, but when you go to Behringer Crater in the floor of the Arizona desert, it becomes immediately obvious when you examine it that the crust of the Earth was struck by something from outside the earth. You understand? The, it's very obvious that an impact has occurred here from something from space. Something from outside this world has struck the planet earth. And so we, we contemplate these things, the massiveness of it. And when seen in the vast emptiness of the High Plains Plateau, Behringer Crater is obvious evidence that the surface of the earth has been struck by an object foreign to our planet. Standing on the edge, it leaves one to wonder what kind of impact caused a crater like this. Likewise, 
the world in which we live, not the physical world, but the spiritual world, the world of day-to-day life, the day of relationships and in our own time on this, our own brief time on this planet, the world in which we live, a world of broken dreams and lives ruined by sin, lives crushed and broken underneath the weight of sin and confusion and uh, the hurt and the pain and the, the sense of hopelessness and no, no sense of purpose. This world in which we live, our sinful world, has been struck by a mighty power which is foreign to us. A power which is so foreign to us. Our world has been struck by the mighty and overwhelming love of God as demonstrated through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This love of Jesus Christ, just as that object that struck Behringer Crater is foreign to us or foreign to this planet, this love of Jesus Christ is foreign to our day-to-day experience. We, we only know about cheap tawdry imitations of love. We only know about vulgar expressions of love, crude expressions of love. And this love of Jesus Christ is quite foreign to us. And in this little letter of 1 John, written somewhere around 90 to 95 AD by the Apostle John to a group of Christians most likely living in the city of Ephesus, he, in the middle of this letter about doctrinal doctrinal fidelity and ethical purity, he stops and just gives a word of exclamation and praise about the love of God. He just stops and it's almost he has to stop and say, there's something I want to say about the love of God. And so we're going to stop this morning for a few minutes out of our lives and we're going to look at the love of God. This love of God is not mere shallow sentimentality. It's not just mere emotion. It is the love of of God. And you have an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along. We're going to see that it is amazing and astonishing. It's agape, not eros, and it arises from the boundless grace in the heart of the Father. What kind of love is this? Would you look with me in your text to notice, first of all, that this love is amazing. Please look at the first word in your text, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. I have the New American Standard. It says, See, it translates the verb as see. The old King James uh, thinks is a little more vivid. It says, behold. Uh, Some translations say, look. It is a word of amazement. That word, it is an imperative in the Greek language. It's as if John is not just saying, hey, look at this. John is saying, look at this. Behold this. Here's something amazing. It is amazing. We, We know what words mean by the way they are used elsewhere in the Bible. And this word for look or behold, it's always used uh, in some sense of amazement throughout the Bible. And so what we're asked to do is to stop and to look. Let uh, every preacher stop and look. Let every philosopher stop and look. Let every physicist and scientist and geneticist stop and look. Let every engineer stop and look. Let every laborer, let every carpenter, let every plumber, let every mother, let every father stop and look. Let every child stop and look. This is amazing. You're looking at something that is beautiful beyond compare. The summer of 2016, we had a vacation in the area of Big Sky, Montana, a fabulously beautiful area. And one afternoon, I've taken lots of hikes through the Rocky Mountains and the Smoky Mountains in the east and 
spent lots of times in the forest. But this particular afternoon, I was at about 8,000 feet, I suppose, walking through this mountain meadow. And I've been through many mountain meadows, but on this particular day, the beauty was overwhelming. I walked through this sea of color, and I was the only one out there. It's as if God himself had taken his hand and scattered a palette of color across this mountainside. It was extraordinarily beautiful. White daisies and purple forget-me-nots, and red alpine paintbrush, some call it Indian paintbrush, all these beautiful colors scattered across the hillside, and it was overwhelming, and I just had to stop and look at this beautiful palette of color God had spread across the mountainside high in the Mount Gallatin range of Montana. Stop and look, and that's what the Bible says about the love of God. Stop and look at the beauty, the magnanimous, gracious, awesome, loving God. It is amazing. It should cause us to stop and look, but it is astonishing. Notice again, this love of God, it's surpassing, it's astonishing. It's not only amazing. Look at your text again, 1 John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. I want to point you out to a couple of important words. See how great a love the New American Standard uh, says. It can be translated what kind. It, 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 it's a word that's used seven other times in the New Testament, and it's always a word used in reference to astonishment. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verse 1, the apostles are showing Jesus Herod's temple, and they're pointing out to him the large stones, and some of them are still there at the bottom of the western wailing wall. They're massive. And he's pointing at these stones and saying, they're saying, look how large they are. And it's that same word that's used right here. It's astonishing. Uh, the same word is used in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus has calmed the sea with a one word, the storm, he calms it. And the apostles say, what kind of man is this? It's the same word right here. What kind of love is this? Look how big the stones are. How big is this love? Uh, what kind of man is this? This is overwhelming. It's astonishing. There's something about this love that's so foreign to our experience that it is astonishing. John Stott, in his little commentary uh, on 1 John, gives us a word study. This word, it's the Greek word potapain. It carried the meaning outside the Bible of from what country? From what country? So the idea is you're describing something that is foreign to you. And so you would use the same word right here. What country is this from? Where did this come from? This is not from around here. This is something different. It's astonishing. John Stott said this. It, as it, it is as if the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world, that John wonders from what country it may come. Indeed, what country is it from? We might say with exclamation, what kind of love is this? What country is this from? It is foreign to us. When the we, 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 in our discussion of history here in the Western Hemisphere, are often overly critical of the Aztecs. But I want to say a favorable word about the Aztecs. Cannibals, though they were, they gave us chocolate. Can we not say something positive about the Aztecs? They gave us chocolate. And there's a reason why I'm saying this. Remember, our word study right here is from what country is this love from, right? You got the picture? What country is it from? So when the Spanish first encountered the Aztecs, the Aztecs were actually using chocolate as a means of exchange. I love chocolate. Um, I mean, someone had, I saw this saying once that said, chocolate doesn't ask silly questions. Chocolate understands. Well, amen. I, I, I don't like desserts. 
I don't like desserts with chocolate and nuts because the nuts take up the place where the chocolate should be. I mean, I don't, I like chocolate. And we should say a positive word about the Aztecs for giving us chocolate. Cannibals, though, they were. But, so when the Spanish bring it back to uh, Europe, they discovered that if you put some honey in it, put some honey in it, it makes it sweet. It was bitter when the Aztecs had it. And uh, I'm so grateful for chocolate. There was, this, there was this one young man, and he was not so favorably attractive. He was not so handsome. And uh, he found a genie in the bottle. You know the genie in the bottle stories. He found a genie in the bottle on the beach, and the genie says, you have one wish. And he said, I want to be irresistible to women. And the genie turned him into a box of chocolates. So he was... Uh, <laughs> So the Spanish bring chocolate to Europe, and they mix some honey with it and some sugar with it, and they realize, boy, this is really good. Can you imagine it's 50, and sometime, I don't know the date, sometime in the 1500s and the 1600s, I will tell you, the Dutch mastered it and the Swiss mastered it. But imagine you're walking down a street in, in Rotterdam or Copenhagen, some city, and you've lived there all your life, and you're walking by a shop, and they say, we have something new. It's called chocolate. And you've never had chocolate before. Can you imagine living in a, t a world where the, you, no one's ever had chocolate? And you, you taste chocolate. And the first time you taste it, you say, man, that didn't come from around here. What country is this from? Where did that come from? This is amazing. You get the picture? This is astonishing. I'm not, it's a life-changing experience, right? And I have to tell you, for someone who's never known the love of God, to hear about Jesus Christ and God's love for you, it must be that sort of astonishment. Where is this from? I've never heard of this, of a God who would care like this, who would bleed like this, who would uh, show mercy like this. Where is it? What country is this from? What kind of love is this? What kind of love is this? It is uh, amazing. It is astonishing. But I want to point out something to you. It is agape, not eros. I have a small word study in your bulletin. You might want to look around there. The, uh, the words uh, agape and phylos are two Greek words for love. They, they actually overlap with each other a lot in the, the New Testament. But there's one word that was in the ancient Greek language for love, and you know it. It is the word eros. If you've ever heard our word erotic for sexual attraction, it's derived from the Greek word eros. And it is interesting that the New Testament uses the word for parental love, storge. It uses the word for brotherly love, phylos, which actually has overlap with agape. But the word eros is never used in the New Testament to describe God's love. And in this passage, the word there is agape, A-G-A-P-E with a long line over the E. Agape, it is agape, not eros. Why is that important? Because outside of the Bible, the word eros, it has lots of meanings and there's lots of word studies we could do about it. But the, what I want to point out to you about eros is outside the Bible, eros was referred to loving someone who is worthy of love because of beauty or physical strength. I define it again. The word eros outside the Bible meant loving someone who is worthy of love because of beauty or physical strength. That's eros. That's not the word that is used in this text right here. It's not the word eros. It is the word agape. And agape is a love for someone who is not worthy. Eros is all about loving someone because of their beauty. They're worthy of love, their physical proudness. But agape is love for someone who is not worthy. 
Agape is far loftier and it seeks the highest good in the one loved. Eros only cares about what the, that person can do for me and I love you as long as you can do something for me. But agape is unselfish, it's loyal, it's benevolent, and it is defined by the cross of Jesus Christ. What kind of love is agape? Let me help you understand what agape is by trying to tell you what agape is not. I will use a quote from Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars recorded a song called Locked Out of Heaven. Six consecutive weeks at number one on the Billboard charts in 2012. And here's what Bruno Mars says in that song, this erotic love song. He says, I'm born again every time you spend the night. Your sex takes me to paradise. That's Eros. You are good to me as long as you can do something for me, as long as you meet my needs, whatever those may be, usually sexual. As long as you bring something to the table, it's all good. But the moment you don't have anything to offer to me, this is done. That's eros. That's not the love of God. The, the, the word for the love of God here is agape. In our world, love means desire or want. It is shallow and based on external beauty. Uh, I have two daughters which are strikingly beautiful. And I become frustrated for my daughters because of eros and the way it permeates our world. Here's what I mean. Every time you check out from the uh, grocery store, you see all these Photoshop models on top of magazine covers. You've seen them on the cover of magazines. And these supermodels. And, and Madison Avenue tells every young girl that she has to be six foot tall and weigh 98 pounds to be beautiful. I would suggest to you as a congregation, there's nothing wrong with most of those supermodels. That one month of my wife's fried chicken and banana pudding wouldn't carry for, cure for a lifetime right there. Um, and that's Eros. You've got some ridiculous standard of beauty, and if you don't meet that, I don't love you. And Bruno Mars, oh, your sex takes me to paradise. I'm born again every time you sin tonight. That's Eros. That's not agape. Agape is not like that. The love of God is not like that. The love of God loves us because we were not lovely. We had nothing. God is pure and holy, and we are sinful and rebellious, and God loves us anyway. It's agape. It's defined by the cross. If you want to know what agape is about, go to Mount Calvary. Go to the cross and see the nails and see the, the crown of thorns and hear the cry, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, and that's agape. And it desires your best. It wants the best for you. It's agape, not eros. It is the love of God. But more than that, it is given. Oh, there's so much more to say here. I must hasten to add that many Protestant liberals have, have taken the substance away from agape by defining it as mere sentimentality, almost as if God has a crush on us. No, God doesn't have a teenage crush on us. It is a decision from the heart of God. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. It doesn't mean that loving is one thing God does. It means everything God does is permeated by his love. It is the love of God. And uh, Protestant liberalism tried to separate the wrath of God from the love of God. And I must tell you, the love of God becomes more amazing when you understand his pure and undefiled wrath on sin. You've heard Christians talk about heaven and hell. And... Both are true. There's only two options when we die. But when we understand that God's wrath is not like an angry or abusive father that just kind of goes off capriciously, but it is his settled disposition against sin, that makes the love of God more amazing. That God 
loves us. And it is given. Do you see this? Look back at verse three, uh, 1 again. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. The, the word bestowed, it's given. It's uh, in the present tense, excuse me, in the perfect tense that indicates permanence. When someone is saved, they are eternally secure. When taken in the context of the entire sentence, the NIV gets the right idea when they translate it this way. See what a great love the Father has lavished on us. You see it there? What a great love the Father has given us. It carries the idea of lavished. He's, he's just pouring it down. The love of God is, is not a trickling stream in the desert. It is a, a mighty Niagara roaring and roaring and roaring. The love of God. Uh, when I was overseas with the United States Army in 2011 and 2012, I came home. And I was, they sent us to Fort Hood, Texas. What are the, I mean, you talk about thinking about apocalyptic thoughts. That's the most lonely, desolate place, North Fort Hood, Texas. But anyway, um, we got back from the Middle East and we spent several days there. And I called Lisa on the phone. I said, I'm back in the States. They're about to send me home. And she said, do you want to go out to eat at a restaurant here in Kansas City when you get back. I said, I don't want to go to a restaurant. I have been eating in army chow halls for a year and MREs for a year. I want your fried chicken and gravy. Now, I don't know how Lisa does it with her gravy, but a miracle occurs. She takes grease and water and flour and milk, and out of this just comes the nectar of the gods. It is awesome. And I said, I don't want... I don't want to go out to eat. I want your fried chicken and gravy. And when I came home, I, I was standing there. This was plaintive look on my face at the oven. And she put fried chicken on there. And she started putting gravy. She didn't just put a little bit on there. Brother, she lavished it on. She poured it on. And let me just tell you, that's the love of God. God doesn't just put a little drop here or there. He lavishes it. It's a mighty roaring river of the love of God. It flows from the heart of God the Father. So it is amazing, it's astonishing, it's agape, not eros, and it leads to our last point here. It arises from the boundless grace in the heart of God the Father. Do you see this here in verse 1? Notice what it says. How great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Now, I need to help you out a little bit. In English, your English translations place the word Father before the verb has and bestowed. But in Greek... In the Greek text, as uh, written by the Apostle John, the word Father comes at the end of the phrase. Why is that important? Because it is stated in such a way in the Greek to stress the fatherly nature of the love. The structure gives the emphasis on the fatherly character and suggests a continuing intimate relationship he establishes with those he saves and makes his children. It's the fatherly nature of the love. And for some people whose father was unkind, and for some people whose father was an alcoholic, drug addict, we live in a country in this nation where over half of children are raised in a home without their biological father present. Father wasn't even present. To talk about the love of God, the father seems foreign. Or if you had a father who was abusive physically or otherwise, it can seem so challenging. And the best thing I can tell you is this. God the Father is not like a violent father here on earth. God the Father is infinite in his love and his mercy. And, and your father and your family may have said the most unkind and cruel things about you. But you have a father in heaven who loves you. It is agape love. And he wants to lavish that love on you. It's the love of God the Father. Uh, the title Father has 
kind of filtered down here in the West, here in America, because of two millennia of Christian history. Even people who are not Christians, they, they know the Christian terminology of the word father, and so the idea of father just kind of permeates our culture, and people, well, of course, father's that way, and certainly God is that way, and isn't he God the father? But sometimes I fear that most people, when they think of God the father, they think of an indulgent grandfather. I've got some grandparents in the room, amen? Got some grandparents here. Do you know why grandparents and grandchildren like each other so much? Because they have a common enemy. That's why they have a common enemy. So, and I have learned that there, all you young couples with babies, listen to me. There is a proven three to one ratio, three to one ratio. It takes three days of re-education for every one day they spend with a grandparent. I'm promising you. And so, but some people think God, the father, he's an indulgent grandfather. No, he's not an indulgent grandfather. He is a righteous father. But let me just tell you, I, I say this with all kindness, the idea of God the Father, and you remember Jesus' model prayer, he said, our Father who art in heaven, this idea of praying to God as Father, relating to him as Father, does not emerge from Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. 99 names for Allah, not one of them is Father. And see, we're so used to this word, we think it's, but listen, in, the, in 90, 95 AD when John wrote this, this was earth-shattering. The Greco-Roman pagan gods were capricious, and you never knew if they were for you or against you. You get the idea of how they thought if you read uh, the Iliad or the Odyssey, the gods are playing around with humans like they're toys. But you wouldn't think of relating to them as father uh, Plato talked about this world of, of forms, this mysterious world of forms. And Aristotle posited what we call some sort of unmoved mover. But Greek philosophy didn't give us the idea of God the Father. The idea of God being Father only comes from the New Testament and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have a Father. And notice what it says that in verse 1 again. It says, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. It, this love of God the Father emerges from the boundless grace in the heart of God. Children of God, and that's what we are, it's what he says here. Children of God, that's what we are. In context, this clause is addressed to those who have experienced the new birth. And he is emphatic, and such we are. God's children, not just in name, but in reality, that when someone receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are adopted into God's family. What kind of love is this? What kind of, where does it come from? What kind of love is this that is so amazing, so astonishing, that's agape, not eros, that arises from the boundless love and the heart, boundless grace in the heart of God the Father? You know what Romans chapter 5 says, where sin did abound, grace did abound all the more. What kind of love is this? What kind of love is this that changes lives? The love of God changes lives. When The Bible says in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Yesterday, Brother Ryan and I were out witnessing and we're driving around Wichita and uh, saw a couple, be, be very honest, strung out on drugs and they're staggering around the street and I stopped. I said, pull over the car. We pulled over. I got out and started witnessing to them, talking to them about Jesus Christ, gave a brief witness. And people see folks like that walk by and they say, well, there's no hope for them. They don't know my Jesus. Jesus Christ changes lives. Jesus Christ transforms people all the time. I, one of my dearest memories in ministry, not every story in ministry ends this way, but one of my dearest memories in ministry is this. 
Uh, there was a couple, Billy and Rebecca, who had been visiting our church in North Carolina. We had attempted to connect with them and have personal conversations about the gospel, had not been able to do so. Finally, on a Thursday evening, one of my deacons, Mark Overby, and I went to their home, Billy and Rebecca's home. And we had an appointment arranged. And the piercing intensity in, in Rebecca's eyes. We came into her house and she set, me down, set us down on a love seat. And Billy and Rebecca are sitting on the couch across from the coffee table. And the piercing intensity in her eyes. And I mean, the earnestness and her brow was furrowed. And she looked at me and pointed her finger and said, I want to know what you've done to my husband. I said, what do you mean? I, and she asked the question again. I want to know what you've done to my husband. And I said, I don't know, tell me what you mean. I, I, I'm, uh, I was taken back. I've never had anyone ask me that. She said to me, he doesn't cuss at me like he used to. He doesn't get angry like he used to. He's quit drinking. He's quit smoking. He's been kind to me around the house. And I want to know, what have you done to my husband? And I said, Rebecca, I haven't done anything, but I think I know who has. And I started talking to Billy, and Billy shared his testimony, riding to work in his pickup truck, listening to the John Boy and Billy Morning Show. Billy gave his life to Christ in a pickup truck. You say, does God save rednecks on their way to work? He did once. I know he did. And how do I know? Because when the wife says you got saved, brother, you got saved. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ changes lives. Don't you forget it. You have a life-changing message. You know what happens? Uh, do you remember when you were a kid and you played marbles? And we go around playing marbles. Can you imagine someone bringing a diamond and playing um, a child's game of marbles with diamond? And you wouldn't do that. Why? Because a diamond is so infinitely valuable than a marble. But you know what happens in churches? We go around. We're playing games of marbles with diamonds. We got the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes. What kind of love is this that reaches down and changes a husband from drunken and angry and violent and to loving and compassionate. What kind of love is this? It's the love of God through Jesus Christ. What kind of love is this that touches the untouchable? You read the stories of Jesus Christ. You read the Gospels. How often does he touch lepers? Untouchable in that culture. No one wanted anything to do with them. And Jesus Christ touched lepers. What kind of love is this that touches the untouchable? I'll never forget the first time I met an AIDS patient. It was 1992. My pastor, Harry Michael, my dearest friend in this world to this day, retired at Lake Oconee, Georgia. I was on staff at a church in Georgia. He said, Alan, we're going down to um, uh, Crawford Long Hospital in downtown Atlanta. And we went to the hospital, and he didn't tell me who we were going to see. But when we got there, he stopped and said, now, I need to tell you something. We're going to a special wing of the hospital here dedicated to AIDS patients. And there's a man here who's an estranged brother from one of the members of our family, uh, member family in the church. And uh, he'd been a professor at a university there in town, and he's dying of AIDS. He's dying of AIDS. And he'd been in the homosexual lifestyle for many years. We go into his hotel room. I'm going to tell you two things I remember. Uh, to this day, I remember it just like it was yesterday. When we walked in the hotel room, the first thing I noticed, there were no cards, there were no flowers, and no one else. He was dying all alone. And all these friends that he had had abandoned him when he had AIDS. We don't want to touch you. And he's dying alone in a hospital room in downtown Atlanta. And the other thing I remember is he was so gray. The color had gone from him. And the AIDS was just, and the, the, was just eating away. And he was emaciated and gray and dying. And we walked into the, the room. And I remember Harry walking over to one side of his bed and reaching out his hand. And he took uh, this 
dying man by the hand and began to pray for him. And I remember Harry began to tell him about the love of God and how God loved him and how Jesus cared for him and how Jesus wanted to forgive him. And the tears began to flow down that man's face and how the love of God out of heaven dripped down into a room of a man dying of AIDS in downtown Atlanta. And what kind of love is this that reaches down and touches the untouchable? And some of you, you felt that way. Your life, your background, no, the love of God is beyond me. I, no, the love of God reaches you and you and you. God loves the unlovable. He touches the untouchable. What kind of love is this that changes lives? What kind of love is this that touches the untouchable? What kind of love is this that grieves with us? Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, at Lazarus' grave, Jesus wept. What kind of love is this that grieves with us? The deist 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson, his grave. Oh, there's a God. He made the universe, left it alone. What a lie. In Jesus Christ, God became man, and he wept. Jesus wept. That grieves with us. I was an army chaplain. I'm going to tell you something. Combat is very disorienting. To see someone that you loved and you trained with die, and to see their body dismembered, and the pain and the confusion and, uh, of combat, it's, it's a disorienting thing. And so many of my soldiers, though, I can tell you, they, they may never understand why all these things happen. But what they discover is when they get close to the foot of the cross, here's what they know. Jesus understands what I'm going through. Jesus understands. Jesus was nailed to a cross and he'd done nothing wrong and he suffered the violence and evil of this world just like I have. And Jesus understands and he grieves with us. What kind of love is this? Not distant and alone and far away. What kind of love is this that grieves with us, that touches the untouchable, that changes lives? What kind of love is this that embraces the outcast? Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 7, this sinful woman who had lived a life of great immorality comes and begins to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. Do you remember this scene? Oh, and the religious muckety-mucks are all upset. The Pharisees are frustrated that such a holy man would let someone so sinful touch him. What kind of love is this that reaches to the outcast and embraces those that no one else wants to have anything to do with? What kind of love is this that loves the world? John three sixteen says what? For God so love the world. I have had the honor of sharing the gospel with people of so many backgrounds. I'm not a great evangelist, but I've had the honor of sharing Christ with people from so many backgrounds, people from uh, European white backgrounds like myself and African-Americans and, and Hispanic. And I've shared the gospel with a PhD student from China at the University of Kentucky. I shared the gospel with another very bright man who graduated from MIT from China in St. Joseph, Missouri. I, I've shared Christ with people that were raised in homes far away from God that knew nothing of the gospel. I shared Christ with a woman who was raised in Iran and saw her best friend killed by a religious mob when she was 16 years old. I've shared Christ with a prima ballerina after she had retired. I've shared Christ with a lady who survived a Japanese imprisonment camp in uh, in the Dutch East Indies during World War II, I've shared Christ with a bounce, two bouncers and one bounty hunter, none of whom I met professionally. I've shared Christ with people from every background, and I'm telling you, God loves the world. And whether someone is in Cambodia or in Chile, whether they are in Wichita, Kansas, or whether they are in Moscow, Russia, whether they are in Beijing, or whether they are in Mexico City, it's the same gospel, the love of God. God so loved the world and that includes you. 
You know, sometimes it's easy to think about the love of God for the world, but then we start thinking about, but my sin, Branch, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. I sure don't, but God's omniscient. He knows every bit of it. And he says, God so loved the world, and that includes you. Write your name down there in John three sixteen. God loves you. What kind of love is this that reaches out to the entire world? What kind of love is this that sets people free from the power of Satan? Mark chapter 5, the Gadarene demoniac, thousands of demons in him, and Jesus Christ sets him free from the power of Satan. What kind of love is this that's victorious over Satan and death and hell? What kind of love is this which exchanges the glory of heaven for the curses of man? In eternity past, all Jesus Christ heard is the eternal Son of God was holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The worth is full of your glory. That's all he'd heard for eternity past. And he exchanged holy, holy, holy for crucify him. Give us Barabbas. What kind of love is this that steps out of eternity into time, incarnate son of God in the person of Jesus Christ that we might be saved? What kind of love is this that dies on the cross and Christ to telestai? The debt is paid, paid in full. What kind of love is this that dies for your sin and for mine? And we've offended God. We had nothing to bring, and yet he brought everything to us. He gave us the what we could never give for ourselves. He gave us the gift of salvation. What kind of love is this that dies in our place? What kind of love is this that rises from the grave? Victorious over death, hell, and the grave. What kind of love is this that when the people come to the tomb, the angels say, why are you looking for the uh, living among the dead? living among the dead he's not here he's risen what kind of love is this that's victorious and so many of us have been to gravesides and we feel the finality of death and we've been there as uh, uh, maybe someone was cremated and we set their ashes aside or maybe the body was laid in the ground and and we feel the finality of it what kind of love is this that is victorious over death hell and the grave and when they take a Christian to the grave someone who's believed on Christ the world says that's the end and the Bible says not so not so they're now more alive than they ever have been what kind of love is this that intercedes for me Jesus Christ ascended to the father and when I pray I have a high priest in the name of Jesus Christ what kind of love is this that ascended to the father what kind of love this is this someday he's coming back I mean faster than a wheel turns on an axle faster than the twinkling of an eye and we see this confusion in this world and someday Christ is coming back what kind of love is this Revelation 21 4 says he shall wipe every tear from their eye What a thought. When I stand before God and I think of the things I've done, the places I've been, and the times I have failed God, there's going to be some tears. What kind of love is this that would reach down and say, Alan, this is the last tear you will ever shed for all eternity. Glory. What kind of love is this? I'll tell you, it's the love of God demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. And he loves you and he wants you. For He's been pursuing you. He's pursuing you and God wants you. He wants you and his family wants to adopt you as his own. Your life has been chasing purposeless and meaningless and you chased money and sex and power and all those things. Why not come to Jesus Christ today? Give your life to Christ. My mother was 16 years old and grew up in a small town. Uh, excuse me, 13 years old, living in a small town in rural Alabama, Ashland, Alabama. I will not go into the whole story today. They'll have to wait for another sermon. But my mother never knew who her father was. She was born to an unwed mother in 1933 in rural Alabama. When my mother died, I found her, found her birth certificate. And under father's name, it says, unknown. 
So there's lots of good things about growing up in rural towns in America. Sometimes they're painful. Uh, and one of the painful things is everybody knows your business. So my mother tells me stories, told me stories. She passed away in 2008 about people calling her ugly names because she did not know who her father was. And she's 13 years old. My grandmother, Lewis, didn't go to church, didn't believe in Jesus. But my mother, she allowed my mother to go to church. My mother, on a Sunday morning, First Baptist Church, Ashland, Alabama, responds to an invitation, gives her life to Christ, and she's wondrously saved, and she lived for Christ for the rest of her life. Now, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. As soon as the service was over, you have this um, next step area. They had something like that at the church back in the day. Two ladies, I believe, unusually sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit took my mother aside in a small Sunday school room there at the old church, and they sat down with her and listened to what they said. We know people in this town are saying things about you because you don't know who your father is. But we want you to know, Jesus does not look at you that way. Jesus does not look at you that way. And I'm telling you, there's someone here this morning. People have labeled you. Some of the pain is inflicted by yourself. Some has been inflicted by others. And you have felt yourself to be of no purpose, of no worth to anyone. And I'm telling you, Jesus doesn't look at you that way. Jesus looks at you through the eyes of love. And he wants you to be saved and forgiven.